Happy Mother's Day. Mother's Day is a special day. We're thankful for it. Wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Mother's Day. And so we want to celebrate that. But one of the things that I want to celebrate is not just mothers, but, but women, the women uh, in our lives. Uh, and I think sometimes we miss that. You know, we, we kind of concentrate on the motherhood, but whether you're a mother or not, you're important to us. And so when we come to Mother's Day, it's always fun to have a message that relates to women. And I was thinking, what could we do? And I thought one thing that women like to talk about are, are courtships and romance. Now, now, guys, you know, that's important to us, too. Again, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. But there's a reason why some movies are called chick flicks, right? <laughs> they don't name them after us. So it's got to have something to do with, with the ladies. And um, it, it's fun. You know, romance can be fun. And asking questions. You ever ask your, your mother how she met your dad or your grandmother how she met your grandfather? You know what I did once? I asked my great-grandma how she met my great-grandpa. Now, that was wild. My, my great-grandmother was born in 1888. She died at 88 when I was 16 years old. She was this cute little white-haired, wrinkled lady who I saw pictures of her, and she was a knockout. She was this really cute little gal. She said jokingly that they called her the Belle of Dunkirk, Indiana, when she was younger. And so uh, she lived with my grandparents, and I'd go visit her. My grandfather fixed a little apartment for her underneath their house, you know, and in their cellar, fix it up real nice for her, and I'd go down to her apartment visitor. She was always watching westerns. She said they reminded her of her childhood. Uh, so, so she went back to Chicago to visit my aunt, and I wrote her a note. I don't even remember what the context was. I was maybe 11, 12 years of age, and I just said, Grandma, how'd you meet um, your, your husband? He'd passed away by that time. How'd you meet him? And, and I have that recorded because I, I figured I'd use it one day as an illustration. So I kept it. Actually, I had no idea I'd be a pastor at that point. But this is, this is what she wrote. It's kind of interesting. It's sort of a blast from the past. She says, I saw him in a store and thought, what a good-looking young man, 17 years. So I said to the girl I was walking with, I'll show you how to catch a bow. <laughs> so I winked at him as we were going by. Well, it worked. Before we got far, out he came and said to me, I remember you at the roller skating rink. Let's go there now. Uh, we went there and had a good time. And for three years, we skated that rink before we finally made up our minds to get married. It was that easy. And for all those years, we liked each other as much as we did the first few years. We strolled together with another couple or rented a horse and buggy and went for a five-hour buggy ride. To us, it was a glorious time. We always took lots of goodies to eat, such as candy, peaches, grapes, and etc. Happy, happy days and nights. When winter came, we and another couple played cards together at our homes making taffy and pulling it until it was snow white, then eating the sticky stuff. Great times what? Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's just like history. Um, so I encourage you, if you haven't, ask, you know, ask your mother or your grandmother or your great-grandmother how they met one another. It's a great story. In fact, we're going to do that today. We're going to go back to one of the earliest, possibly the earliest story of romance that we have in the Bible. And it's in Genesis 24. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Before we jump into it, I remind you that next week we have Daniel. One more time, we're concluding the Daniel series. Daniel chapter 12, 13 verses. Read it. Take a look at it, and we'll go over it, and we'll conclude our series um, on uh, the future belongs to God. But today we're looking at Genesis chapter 24. And as we jump into that, we're going to look at seven guidelines. We're just going to walk through the, the, the chapter, and we're going to look at seven guidelines um, for um, for godly courtships. 
And the first one starts in verses 1 through 2. And let me read that to you. It says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord. And when it's capitalized like that, the Hebrew people would pronounce that as Yahweh. That was God's personal intimate you know, covenant name, Yahweh, had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge over all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. Um, a ticklish situation. Uh, I've never asked anybody to do that. That probably comforts you to know. Uh, that's, very, that's a very different culture, right? And we're just like, what is this all about? Okay, um, true confessions. This passage theologically is not really about courtship. So, but I don't think I'm stretching the principles. We're going to be looking at the principles. You know what this passage is really about? It's really about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. How do you get that out of this? Because God made a promise. He made a covenantal contractual agreement with, with Abraham that as Abraham followed him, Abraham's descendants would essentially save the world. And what Abraham didn't understand right now at that point is his key descendant is Jesus. Jesus will come from his offspring and he will save us. He will die on the cross from us and he will rise from the grave. And so all this had to happen in order for Jesus to come. And the situation is, is that Abraham is now an old man and God has blessed him abundantly. He is the chieftain of a tribe of maybe 600 or so people. He's a very prominent and very wealthy man. But his wife, Sarah, has died. And his son, Isaac, is not married. And he has to get married to carry this thing on. So how's that going to happen? And so he goes to his servant, and we find out in Genesis chapter 15, verse 2, it tells us that his main servant was a guy named Eliezer of Damascus. So he was Syrian of his background. background. And Eliezer, I'd love to meet this guy. He sounds like a really cool guy. He's kind of like the chief of staff, his loyal lieutenant. He runs everything for him. And he calls Eliezer and he says, buddy, we've got to get to work. Because, you know, we've got to get Isaac married. And so when he says, put your hand on my thigh, that was kind of, in those days, that was like last will and testimony. You are making a commitment on death, so to speak, that you're going to fulfill this for me, okay? Let's make sure we do this. And it was just a way of committing themselves. And so that's what happens here. And so the rest of the story is all about how they secure a wife for Isaac. But in the process, there are principles here that the Bible's only going to teach us what's right. And so we can learn what you should be doing properly when you're pursuing a relationship with someone. And when somebody is following God, especially in later years with the power of the Holy Spirit in us, as we trust in God and we pray to him, these are guidelines for us to look for. Now, this relates especially to those who have not yet gotten married. And some of you are young, and some of you maybe are getting older and getting closer to the marriageable age. Some of you maybe um, are divorced or widowed, and others of you have been married for a long time. So if you haven't been married especially this is especially good for those that have never been married and if you're thinking about marriage again this is good and I would say that if you've been married for 50 years this is good because you can look back at this you can pray for others you can pray for your kids as they go through this and give them advice when they ask you don't want to give them too much advice unless they ask okay stage is set and so what we see here is the first thing we see is the wise council of elders in this case what we have here is an arranged marriage I don't Get a lot of outcry on this topic these days. A lot of people don't want to go back to that. Most people would rather that their 
father and his main employee does not choose who, he's going to, who they're going to marry, right? Uh, it seems kind of strange, and it is valuable to get married to the one that we love. But at the same time, we do well to listen still to some of these older people. It's good to listen to older and wiser people. To have parents around us that know us well and can give us advice, especially if those parents know and love the Lord. Yeah, and there may be some cases where it's an older friend, but you're looking for somebody who's maturing in their relationship with Christ who can guide you, direct you, and encourage you in those kinds of decision making. So that's kind of the the first one that we've got there. Now, the second one is um, verses 3 through 9. Look for one who follows the God of Abraham. Picks up in verse 3, it says, um, That I may make you swear by Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps a woman may not want to be willing to follow me to land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. Yahweh, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under his thigh of his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Okay, so, you know, what, what we see here is um, Abraham has to find a wife for his son Isaac. And you say, well, why doesn't he just marry somebody within his tribe? Well, there's a couple possible, possible problems there. One is they're not of the same lineage that God had prophesied, but also they're his servants. And that would be, you know, be awkward under the circumstances in the culture in that time. So the logical person that they'd go to is the Canaanites. What's wrong with the Canaanites? They're pagans. They don't worship the God of Abraham. That's the key here is they don't worship the same God. And so he says, go back to my family. When we go back early in Genesis, we see that Abraham and his wife Sarah were called by God to come to Canaan, which would eventually become the land of of Israel. And he had a brother, and his brother's name was Nahor. And Nahor was married to Milcah. And you know what? I'm certain that Abraham and and Sarah told their faith. They shared their faith with Nahor and Milcah. In fact, Nahor and Milcah actually traveled with them towards Canaan. But eventually they lost heart and they stayed behind and they stayed in Mesopotamia, modern Syria. You see, a lot of times that happens in families, right? We, we all come to know the Lord at one point, but some of us keep on growing while others stop. His, Nahor and Milcah were growing believers, but they stopped. Physically, they stopped and they lived in Syria. But Abraham and Sarah went on to inherit the promised land. Still, that's the best he's got. They're at least believers. They believe in his God. And so he says, I want you to go back to them and, and see what you can do and see if you can find a wife for me. And when you find her, he says, don't, you know, make sure that she um, doesn't stay there because we're supposed to build something up here. We're supposed to have a nation here in Canaan. So bring her back. And if she doesn't come, then that's not the right one. Makes it pretty simple. Now, how do, we, how do we apply that to today? What's the principle for us? I mean, people say, well, you know, uh, one, you know, 
keep the keep the bloodline pure, whether it be Italian or Portuguese or Irish or Mexican or even American. Well, I'm all for that from a spiritual perspective. Make sure that we keep our bloodline pure spiritually. The ideal is that believers marry believers. That's the point here, is you marry somebody else that knows the Lord. That is the ideal. Now, if you have married somebody who doesn't know the Lord, you start from there. God is still in control of all of these events, and he can work it all out. But we're talking about the ideal. If you haven't gotten married and you know Jesus, what you should do is marry somebody else who knows Jesus. It's pretty basic. It doesn't make it that difficult. Um, sometimes people say to me, well, you know, I, if I do that, I might be waiting forever. Well, then wait forever. You know, it's, it's the best way to do. God knows what's best for you. And certainly, if that's what God wants for you, God can provide that for you. Can you not? And so, uh, so that's, what, that's what we shoot for primarily. Now, the next thing that he talks about in verse 10, um, he talks about financial provision. He actually brings some camels in. And we go, what's the deal with that? Well, camels, domesticated camels, showed that this dude was worth a lot of money. He was very wealthy. Um, Carrie and I actually rode some camels down near where Abraham lived, near the Dead Sea, when we went to um, Israel. And they are kind of fun, but a little bit uncomfortable. (laughs) This lady was with us, and she said, when I was a little girl, I tried to ride a camel, and it bit me. And sure enough, the camel started nibbling at her. Nobody else, just her. I wondered if she, you know, she had like, if her, you know, if her perfume was made of extracts of grass and wheat and oats, which they like to eat. I don't know, but, this, but it was after her. But uh, the rest of us had a good time. And these camels seem to be well-trained that he brings with him. And the purpose is that he's going to be going hundreds and hundreds of miles. And then he's going to have to take her back hundreds and hundreds of miles. He wants this lady to know, and he wants her family to know, she's going to be provided for. We're going to take care of her. So I think the principle is, when you get married, you need to responsibly care for the person that you're marrying. And we see this especially with the man, but today, you know, it may be a combination of both of you working together. Um, if you have a great, if you have a job, that's great. If you're young, it may be that you have a dream that you're pursuing. But you have a dream. You have some direction that you're going in, and you're being responsible. Now, not everybody is going to have the money that Abraham has, right? Um, so what do you do? Do you wait? You know, a lot of people today are saying, well, we don't have the money to marry responsibly yet. We don't have that much, so we'll wait. And we'll move in together, and we'll save money. What do you think? By no means. That's not what this passage is saying. And we'll see that comes up again and again. No, that's, you, don't, you don't sacrifice. It's almost like, you know, saving financially and losing your virginity. I mean, that doesn't, you know, that, that doesn't come out to the right combination to me and to the Bible. So that's not what the Bible is teaching there. Um, but, but what is happening is that, you know, and, and if you're there, you know, God, God forgives. You know, I mean, then, then maybe it's time to get married. You know, or talk about that situation. But ideally, what you do is, um, you know, you, you basically say, let's, let's see what we can do to make this work. And you realize that the God of the universe is your heavenly father, and he can provide all the money you need because he provided all the money for Abraham. And so you're responsible as best as you can be, but let's understand that some poor people have had some pretty good marriages. 
and marrying and not having that much and working together and trusting God, he can get it to work. I mean, I remember when I got married, I mean, Carrie and I didn't have anything, but we had a dream. We knew what we were doing. We were working toward it. We were being responsible, but it was tough. I mean, we got married. We sold off most of our wedding presents to make money, you know, to have enough money to pay for our bills and stuff. Um, my parents bought us a, a bed, but it didn't arrive on time. So we moved in. We slept on the floor for like a, a week. But you look back in those memories now, and they're funny, and you laugh at them, and you see how God took care of you. And it grew you closer to one another, even as it drew you closer to God during that time. Um, the next one is, is interesting. Pray according to God's will. Listen to this. This is a, a fascinating section here. It says, um, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he says, so he's praying here, O Yahweh, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman, woman to whom I say, please let down your jar that I may, uh, that I may drink, and who shall, shall say, drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. This reminds me of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse uh, 10, where he says, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. That when we pray, we pray according to God's will. And sometimes when we want to get married, we're thinking about some, the, the man of our dreams or the woman of our dreams instead of saying, God, who have you prepared for me because you know what is best. And so we seek to align our heart with God and we say, God, who do you want me to get married to? What do you want me to do? You know, people say, well, some people say, well, I don't think God is that concerned about who you marry. Now, I think he is. Proverbs talks about marriage as a gift from God. But I also don't think you lose sleep over it. I think you walk with God. That's all you worry about. You know, if you have a personal relationship with God and you're growing in that relationship with him, then the pieces of the puzzle fall together. And that's what this passage shows. But what it also shows in the process is it shows that he's praying. And it's the, the most detailed place in the whole Bible where we have an example, and it's all throughout this whole passage, we won't even look at all of it, of a man who prays conversation with God. Do you talk to God all day long? Eliezer did. Well, I mean, all he had was camels, so who else are you going to talk to? Uh, he probably had others with him, but he's talking to God all the time, and he's saying, you know, God, what should I do here? And what should I do here? What do you want me to do? He's just conversing with him. Some people criticize him and scholars will say, well, he should have just trusted God. He shouldn't have set all this stuff up. You know, he sets the camels up because he figures it's the cool of day. Ladies are going to come out. I'll see which one I'm going to get. But the point is, is that he's just, I think the thing I take away from it is you pray and then you watch the circumstances and you see what God does. And it's amazing how God puts all the pieces, um, together in our life. I mean, our life is, 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 is like, a, it's, a, it's a story. It's an epic that God's writing. And we're part of that story, and we just live it out, and we enjoy it, and we watch what he's doing, and we work with him. Last year, we went to a Stephen Curtis Chapman concert, um, and while we were there, right before the concert began, Carrie went to the restroom, and she came out with Jill Holm. Jill Holm was our matchmaker in college. We hadn't seen her for a long time. She used to work with a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ. Now it's called Crew International at San Jose State. And um, she met Carrie. She was recruiting her to come join our group. 
And she came back and she said, I met this girl and she's perfect for you. And she just went on and on and on. And then she invited her to come to the homecoming football game where we had a big event. All of us went to that. And that's where I met her. The problem was, you know, the problem was getting Carrie to understand God's will for her life. <laughs> that took a little while. But eventually, um, eventually the Lord prevailed and she got her right life right with the Lord and then with me. Um, but you, you see how God puts these. But I look back on it and I think... So much stress, unnecessary. Just pray and observe what God is doing. And just take one step at a time and observe the people and the circumstances and things fall into place. But it, what's important is that we're praying and we're communicating with God through the process, just like Eliezer was. Now, the next thing we see is we look for a person of character. I'm not going to read this to you because there's a lot there. But there's a couple things that pop out. Some, most of it is about character, but there's some other details about her. Um, one is we find out right away that he meets this gal named Rebecca, and she is the granddaughter of Nahor. Bingo. Ah, she's part of the family. Now, there may be other daughters. He doesn't know, but he's met her first. So he, he begins to interact with her, and he finds out she's a believer as, as time goes on. In fact, one of the most uh, telling passages in the whole thing is in verses 57 through 58, later on, they will ask her if she wants to go with Abraham, uh, go with Eliezer and the camels to meet Abraham and, um, and Isaac. And that's easier said than done, because she may never see her family again. And it's a long journey. And she's never met Abraham and Isaac, the guy she's going to marry. And she has to decide, is she going to do this or not? And she understands their faith, and he, she hears what they say. And her father and, uh, and her family is all saying, you know, you don't have to do this, honey. You can take your time. We, don't, we can wait a little longer. And Eliezer says, i got to get back. And dad's saying, why don't you just wait and think about this? And she says, I will go. I will trust God with this. And it reminds us of Ruth later on uh, in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For you, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. And so we see this sense of commitment that this is what God's will is. I will follow it. She's an amazing young lady. I mean, he, she goes up to him and she says, hey, you need, you, you need something to drink probably. I'll give you something to drink. Hey, you have camels. Can I take care of your camels? Do you have a place to stay? We see that she's assertive, that she's hardworking, that she's unpretentious, that she's kind, that she's caring, that she's hospitable. This is a lady of character. So the point is from our common vernacular, you know, if we talk today, you're not really looking just for a Christian, but if you yourself are a maturing Christian, you, you know, committing, committed Christian, you're looking for a committed Christian. You don't want somebody who just believes. You want somebody who's growing in their relationship with Jesus Christ. You want somebody who's, you know, really going to be, you know, a strong believer. Somebody who you know prays. Somebody you know who's reading their Bible. Somebody who has great relationships with other believers. Somebody who's telling others about Jesus Christ. Somebody who knows their gifts and abilities and are using them to serve God. Somebody who is transparent. As James chapter 5 verse 16 says, they'll confess their sins. They'll admit that they have problems because everybody does. And, you know, and when you look at that, you say, wow, this is, this is what I'm really, I'm really looking for. Um, so it, it's hard. You know, it, 
you know, you have to trust God and you have to be patient. And I know there's people here from different backgrounds, you know, and, and people have been widowed, people have been divorced, people have been single. You know, what, is, what does the Bible say about that? And I find it interesting that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says it's actually better to be single. And he gives himself as an example. Boy, that goes against our culture, doesn't it? I think we're a little out of balance today. What we really need is godly single people more than we need godly married people. We're way out of balance. But if God has put in your heart a desire to get married, then that's a good thing. But be patient. And you know what? Embrace the time you have. Better to be happily single than unhappily married. And it seems like, you know, isn't it? Whatever we have, we, we aren't satisfied. So when we're single, we want to get married. And then we're married. Oh, I need more time to myself. And we have kids. Oh, you know, and everything we want, we complain about when we get it. You know? And so, and so the idea is embrace the moment. If you're single... You've got time to spend with your family and other families and develop friendships, getting a woman's study and getting a man's study. Um, you know, go out and, and enjoy your life. Travel, especially people want to travel. What I don't get is people want to travel all the time, but people don't want to serve. They want to take in and have fun. But, you know, how about going on a long-term mission trip? How about taking six months to do a missionary trip or even a couple months? I mean, you have the opportunity to do those kinds of things that other people just can't. Think of the things that you can do that you couldn't do when you get married and enjoy those times. And wait and see what God will do. Um, once again, people say, well, how do, you, how do you find a spouse like this? How do you find this kind of spouse of character? You know how you find it? You become one. You become one. And when you become one, you will find your spouse not in the bar but very likely in a church event where you're both working side by side and then you run into each other. Like I ran into Carrie. It was a, it was a football game, but it was a, it, we were, it was a kickoff for our, our ministry. Like I like to say, I intercepted her pass. <laughs> she doesn't like that. Probably more the other way. But anyway, <laughs> you know, but you meet and you attract like magnets when you end up you know, in an event like that. And so I just encourage you to think about how you might do that. Now, the next section is kind of interesting presence. And in verse 22, um, I just want to highlight this. It says, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels. So he gives her arm bracelets, arm, you know, armbands. And actually the the ring is more clear in other um, translations. He gives her a nose ring. Now, when I used to share this, when I used to share this, say, 20 years ago, everybody would bust up. They, they would just could not stop laughing to think how barbaric it was that women would wear rings in their noses. But that's changed, hasn't it? And those of you that have rings in your noses, it's okay because it's in the Bible. You know, I mean, they had it. just all, all I ask is take him out when he got a head cold, you know, um, the, <laughs> the, there, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and it can be attractive and people, you know, do that. That's fine. Um, but it's a different world. You know, I, I, it's a good lesson for us about culture. Because we'll look at things like remember how we were laughing about how you put the hand under the thigh because we don't understand that. But. 40, 50 years from now, people are going to be looking back at us, maybe even 20 years, and looking at how weird it was that they did that. 
And so when we read the Bible, we need to be careful how we read it and not be you know, judging people because we need to understand their culture is different. The key here, though, is the idea that presents are a love language, and they've been that way as far back as we can imagine. And today, the greatest gift that you can give, according to jewelers, is uh, a wedding ring, right? You, the man drops down on his knee, and he presents the ring. Um, and so that's gifts. But everybody's different. You know, we're different on the spectrum in terms of giving. Some people really get into gift, gifts. You know, it's, it's their love language, right? And some people aren't as much that way. I'm not really huge into gifts. Um, I mean, occasionally I get good gifts like cookies and um, a good book. Um, no, I, but, but sometimes people say, I've got something that reminds me of you. And it's like, I want to go run and hide. You know, I don't know what they want to give me. Um, I'm not always the best giver of gifts. Uh, fortunately, that's not something that my wife requires a lot. We wouldn't, wouldn't probably be married, right? But I, you know, I, you know, she says she wants something, and I'll, I'll say, what do you want? I'll go get it for her. Or I'll say, go, just go spend and get it, you know? We kind of work it out. But I think the, the basic idea is that it's not just that you're giving gifts, that you can give gifts, and, and they don't have to be expensive, and you don't have to, you know, we don't have your dad and his his chief employee go out and buy for you. What do you want, honey? You know, it doesn't work like that. But you can still give good gifts to people. And it can be simple. It can be candy. It can be flowers. You know, we've done that. You know what Carrie does like is I do, I do give her things. I mean, I give her, I give her cards. I write her poems. I do projects for around the house. Tell her how much I love her. You know, those are the things that she likes. Find out what is most, you know, your, your spouse most enjoys. The point is that you're expressing your love for that person through your time, through your resources, through your gifts. You do it in a sacrificial manner and you let them know that you love them. And so that's a very important part of courtship and one that comes from the very beginning, the giving of gifts. The next one I'm not going to read either. Um, It covers most of the rest of the passage, 29 through 59, but I call it outlaws and in-laws. We get a glimpse of her family And as we find out here, and we'll see in the rest of the chapters, they're a piece of work. She has a very, very dysfunctional family. Now, I hear people say, you know, I want to make sure that my kid marries into a very strong Christian family so they don't have all these problems. I have yet to meet a family that doesn't have dysfunctions. Because we're all sinners, right? And so every, every family's messed up, so just get over it. And the, the, other, the other thing I hear is, you know, I want a family, you know, make sure that we just have everything alike. That doesn't work either. So it didn't work for us. So Carrie and I lived four, lived, grew up 40 minutes from each other. Both had sisters. I had two. She had one. Basic same ethnicity, pretty close. Um, basic same socioeconomic background, pretty close. Get this. Both grew up in yellow houses with white trim. And our families are about as different as you could ever imagine. Because that's just how it is. So get to know each other's families. And understand what their dysfunctions are. And learn to manage it. And learn to love them unconditionally. You know, build, build relationships and do the best you can in those relationships. Now, understand this. That... When it comes down to it, you're not marrying. It's not the marriage isn't really between two people. Have you figured this out yet? It's between two families. You can live a continent away and you carry your baggage with you. 
You have you, what you think is family based on your background, and your spouse has what they think is family based on their background. And the worst thing you can do is say, we, we're going to choose this one and follow them. Then you just carry on all their messed up stuff. The best thing you can do is find the balance between the two, find what's best, and make that your own, and charge your own path, and develop your own dysfunctions. Okay, but, but, you can, but you can do the best you can. And that way you can have the best marriage you possibly can have and, and you can grow in your relationship with each other. Um, respect the family. One of the things you don't always hear often these days is asking for permission. You know, I mean, that's a good thing for men to do. Man up and ask permission. You know, I mean, he's not, he's not arranging the marriage anymore, but at least you can go to dad and ask for permission for, for her hand in marriage. I remember going out to the garage. In those days, my father-in-law Cliff was still smoking, and he would sit out in the garage and by his tool bench and read his San Jose Mercury News and smoke a cigarette. And so I went out to that wiry old ex-Marine and printer, and I, you know, I said, well, you know, I, I'd like to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage and, I, and all that. And he just looked at me, and he goes, Ron, you've been around here a long time. You're already part of the family. <laughs> And that was pretty much it. My, my in-laws later said they were so glad we got married because I was uh, eating them out of house and home. <laughs> um, but but there's, another, there's another side to this, and it's extremely important that we remember that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Try to work with your families, but understand this. Every time you make a decision... One of the four in-laws, or now you know if there's been divorce and so forth. I was talking to a girl the other day. She says Mother's Day. She's got multiple people to visit. One of the eight mothers and fathers or whatever. They're all going to disagree. There's always going to be somebody who disagrees with every move you make. So you can't live your life trying to please them. You decide what's right and you do it. Don't run back to mom and dad for all your decisions and all your problems. You decide what's right. You are now one. And if one of them comes in and tries to tell you how to do things or meddles in your life, you've got to say politely, this is mine. This is, we are called together to be one. And I am now, my wife or my husband is now the most important thing. And you're the one who, who protects them. You, you protect your spouse from that. And you work together as one. Okay, so uh, it, it kind of comes down to this at the end, a commitment to love. And I want to read just this last little section today because I think it's worth reading. It's sort of interesting. Picking up at verse 62. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai and was uh, dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. It's a beautiful picture. You know, he was living in the high desert. It's probably, you know, as evening is coming in, I think he's probably looking at a beautiful sunset. They have gorgeous sunsets out there. And he looks around and he sees the camels coming. And he's wondering what's going on. And she comes out. She puts the veil on her. Now, this is a very interesting part is that um, she puts the veil on her, which says that she's married. 
Fortunately, she was a very beautiful woman. You know, we've, we, you know that, that's an important part. It, earlier on, it said she was very beautiful because if she wasn't, you know, I mean, she could have been a dog. He didn't know, <laughs> right? Because she had the veil on her. Um, but but she, she's beautiful. And beauty, of course, lies in the eyes of the beholder. Um, I kind of feel like everybody's attractive, especially when we're young. Um, we're just, you know, we look different. Some people may stand out a little bit more. But I don't, you know, beauty is highlighted here earlier, so I think that it is an important thing that you look for. But to me, it's not the most important thing. But definitely, it's, it helped seal the deal for me the first time I saw my little wife, you know. She had thick brown hair and, and streaked with blonde, you know, from the sun, and, and she had it feathered back like Jacqueline Smith and, um, you know, and Charlie's Angels in those days, big blue eyes, big smile, cute little petite figure. I thought, wow, this is it, you know. I started singing, when I fall in love, it will be, no, so I, you know, I just, it just took such a while for her. That was the hard part is if I could have gotten her to understand God's vision, but, um, but we got there. The other thing that it says, though, earlier on in here, um, when she puts it on, this means that she's, a, she's, um, she's not married. And the other thing that's critical here is it says earlier that she's a virgin. In those days, to say that a woman was a virgin was identical with saying she was unmarried. Before the birth control, you know, before we had birth control, you didn't have sex because if you did, you got pregnant. And so marriage, and this is the way I think God initially intended it, was... You know, that was marriage. You know, that was how you, you sealed the deal by having a sexual relationship. And notice that's how they got married. They didn't take oaths. They didn't exchange rings. They went into the tent. And when they went into the tent, they came out married. That's how you did it. Today, we also often have it backwards, right? You know, today, today we, we have sex. We give, we give the most valuable thing we can give first. And then we backtrack and say, I'm committed to you. I'm making an oath to you that I'm going to be faithful to you and give what's most important to me to you. Well, you already have. You know, it's, all, it's like, it's like go, have, at Christmas time, we give all the presents now, you know, throughout the year. And then we all get together at Christmas and just talk about it. And so we've got it backwards. And, and again, if you've done that, God is a forgiving God. And you just move on from there. But I encourage you to come and, and get counseling and make sure that you have support and accountability to get back on the right track. So that's a good example that he gives here. But the other thing that I see that really stands out more than anything else is at the end, the main message that we see here is, is that you do not have to marry the person that you love. but you need to marry, you need to love the person that you marry. Don't have to love the per- you don't have to love the person that you marry, but you need to, how did I say that? I said that wrong, huh? <laughs> I knew I would say that once I got saved. So I'm going to say it right. It is essential that you marry, the, not essential that you marry the one you love, but you must love the one you marry. You must, so you choose to love them. Understand that arranged marriages often are more successful than those that are not. Why is that? You don't have a choice. This is it. You got to make it or break it. And we need to go into marriage the same way. Um, I know there are times that marriage obviously needs to to end. Um, Sometimes in divorce that happens. But 
the goal should be to do the best you can to love the other person. And if you're both loving one another, um, especially if you both, the idea is if, if you both are committed believers and you both have God in your lives and you're both committed to loving one another, you've got good things in front of you. Now, one of you can fall off the wagon, right? And things can fall apart, but you at least are setting it up in the best possible way. And that's what we're looking at today. And so the key here, I think, for marriage more than anything else, if I had to say if there's one verse to look for for how to get married, I would look at, at Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek God, grow with him, and everything else will fall in place. So that's what I'd encourage you to do. So that's the most important thing that you can do this Mother's Day. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we encourage you to come and talk to us, that we might talk to you and help you along that process. And if you are in a relationship with him, then the most important thing you can do this Mother's Day is just continue to seek after him, walk with him, and uh, enjoy the path that he leads you on. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you for Mother's Day. Thank you um, for women in our lives. Thank you for this example, this story. Um, kind of a fun story when we put it together and, and look at these things. Thank you for Abraham, Eliezer, for Rebecca. What a wonderful woman she must have been and for her marriage, um, ultimately, to Isaac. And I pray that you would enhance our marriages and give wisdom to people that are not yet married um, and help us to grow in you in the process and enjoy your guidance in our lives. In your name we pray, amen.